So having those mentors in my life truly changed the trajectory of, you know, my life. And so I kind of felt like I wanted to be that same mentor to the younger athletes. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? The main thought on my mind this week is that long-distance relationships suck. Eric and I are basically in a permanent long distance, well, not permanent. We're basically in a long distance relationship right now because in order to play teams in the US, TFC had to relocate their home field to Hartford, Connecticut. Every once in a while, they come back for spurts of two days at a time. Eric and I used to be long distance in our relationship and I forgot how hard it was. In some ways, when it's short term, I think we're pretty good at it, but it is a skill. There are different skills required to stay connected over a distance than when you're in person. It requires understanding what you need to feel connected and asking for that. It requires understanding what the other person needs to feel connected and giving them that. So it's tough. And I'm sure anyone that's been in a successful long distance relationship before can understand that. I think we'll learn a lot about communication, even in a way that we don't already know. The last time we were long distance, we were 20 years old. So we were babies. And I feel like it was actually easier because we weren't at a point in our relationship where we understand what it means to have a really connected, healthy, strong relationship. And now we know, and so we want to make that happen over a distance, but obviously that requires a lot of thought, effort, and energy. So we're figuring it out. I know it will only make us stronger, but it's challenging. So that's kind of been on my mind this week. This week's episode of the podcast is with a two-time Olympian, Martha McCabe. Martha was named the Canadian swim team captain in the 2016 Rio Olympic Games. And four years before, she came in fifth place in the 2012 London Olympic Games in her specialty event, which is the 200-meter breaststroke. She is the founder and president of Head to Head, which is a Canadian company that promotes mental resilience and physical wellness through Olympian-led mentorship programs. Martha was elected by her fellow Olympians in 2016 to sit on the COC Athlete Commission and is also the current chair of the Swimming Canada Athlete Council. Martha grew up in Toronto, but now lives in Canmore, Alberta, where she spends her free time enjoying the mountains, cycling, running, hiking, skiing, exploring the outdoors. Basically, she does everything and anything active. This was an awesome episode for many reasons. First of all, I had a blast hearing about Martha's experience on the Canadian national swim team and her experience competing in the Olympics. Martha also talked a little bit about how she came out as part of the LGBTQ plus community this past summer. And 
what brought her to wanting to make that public declaration and how she feels since. Finally, we talked about Head to Head, which is such a cool organization. It centers around mentorship for kids, and I'm very inspired by the mission of Head to Head. I loved this conversation with Martha. I'm so thankful that she came on to share her time and thoughts with us. So I hope you guys enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Hi, Martha. Welcome to the How Do You Feel podcast. I'm really looking forward to this chat today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I always launch off episodes of the podcast by asking a how do you feel question. So in looking back on your swimming career, which was punctuated by lots of accolades, the biggest one that stands out being coming in fifth at the 2012 London Olympics, which is amazing. How do you feel looking back on your swimming career now that you're a little bit removed from it? I think I feel a lot of things looking back at my swim career. Probably one that stands out is I feel lucky to have been able to have had that swim career. So much came from it. That's probably the biggest feeling I have. And I think really just a lot of positive emotions and gratitude. Yeah. Was it challenging to retire after committing your whole life to that for so long and for so many years? In a way, I guess, but honestly, by the time I retired, I was fortunate enough to have been on the national team for nine years. I went to two Olympics, so I was ready to retire. Um, A lot of athletes don't have that privilege and, you know, injury comes up or something like that. But for me, I was, it was kind of part of a plan. I wanted to move on to other things. I was excited about other things. So I was extremely fortunate to be ready when I actually ultimately did make that decision. Yeah, that's nice. It must make that transition a little bit easier for sure. You can correct me if I'm wrong, because this is my perception from not being a swimmer and having never really swam in any competitive way. Um, but seeing my my friends who were swimmers and my brother swam for a little bit, I have a lot of respect for swimming because to me, my perception is that it is such a grueling sport. Like the hours that you put in, I don't know why, but swim practice seems to always be super early morning. Like the hours and hours that you put in to shave off tenths of a second from your time. It just, my perception is that it's very intense. And I know that people burn out from it because of that. How did you avoid burnout, especially with such a long career? That's a great question. Um, I had a lot of little strategies in place to avoid burnout because like you say, swimming is one of those sports that because it's a low impact sport. So you're not out there, you know, running, like pounding on your body or anything like that. You can swim so much every day. You're spending four hours in the pool and then you're doing dry land training on top of that. You're spending six hours a day often just training. So then you've got to rehab, you've got to recover. It, it is a full-time job. And so for me personally, in order to avoid that burnout, things like having friends outside of swimming, that I could go home, you know, even roommates outside of swimming that when I went home and complained about swimming, it was like a 10 second conversation because they had no idea what I was talking about. And we wanted, went on and spoke about something else. Having that mentally, that little escape was huge for me. I always like did school or had something else I was doing while I was swimming. I worked part-time at RBC as an RBC Olympian, having something that I could focus my energy on outside of swimming 
Mm-hmm. I know in a way that sounds like you're adding more things to your to do list and making right. burnout more likely. But for me, it was having balance, um, being able to escape from swimming and have something else. And then I think just working with the professionals that we have at our fingertips as Olympians, like having a nutritionist, someone I work with sleep professionals even to make sure that I was recovering away from the pool. All those things are just like, I could speak about that for hours really, but those are some of the things that I used in order to avoid that burnout. That makes total sense. When I think about avoiding burnout from work, for example, it comes in similar things, right? You have to, you have to have things that take your mind completely off of that task and that subject and have friends that have nothing to do with your work and people that where you can just let all of that stuff go. So you get some space Mm -hmm. and removal from it. So it doesn't become completely all consuming. Makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us about your sort of most challenging race and take us through that? And when I say that, I mean it from kind of a mental perspective. What was the most challenging race that you had to had to face? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, Because in a way, for me, my approach to swimming was I tried to make every single race, just I approached it in the same way, whether it was a regional competition in Canada, or I was going to race at the Olympics or the World Championships, I tried to approach it like it was just another 200 meter breaststroke, which was my specialty. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the hardest race mentally, I think what I'll kind of chat about maybe is... um, the 2015 Pan Am games, they were held in Toronto and that's where I'm born and raised. And all my friends and family were coming out to that event. They were in the building with me. And at that point I was kind of a veteran on the national team. So there were a decent amount of expectations, both that I put on myself, but just from being um, one of the hometown athletes, I think. So I think for that race, there's just an added layer of pressure kind of. And so it made it a little bit more challenging. I had to really work to calm my nerves down both before the race and even during the race, just keep staying focused on, you know, one stroke at a time as I went through the race. Mm. It was such a loud venue being, you know, in Canada and both myself and the girl who won the race, um, we were Canadian. And so it was one of the loudest venues I've been in, in that kind of scenario. So just trying to keep, like I say, focused on the task at hand while I was racing, I was probably one of the more challenging ones. Yeah. And you guys ended up finishing one too, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So clearly you were able to kind of push past that. Were you also coming off of an injury for that race or am I thinking of something else? I was actually the year before I was injured. And so like I was, I was fully healed by the time the Pan Am games rolled around, but that actually added a layer of mental kind of strain for me going into that season. I was just worried about being injured um, or injuring myself again, which is something I had never had in my brain before getting that injury. So despite being physically fully healed from that injury at the time, mentally, I was a bit concerned about injury, which is something that was new to me. So yeah, it was a bit of an added challenge for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having that little bit of fear where maybe previously there wasn't any, I can imagine that that would make a difference. Yeah, totally. Definitely. How, how were you injured? What happened? It was your clavicle? Yeah. So I had a s- stress fracture to the distal part of my clavicle. So it was, likely not from swimming itself, but from, uh, overhead weightlifting in the gym. 
that year I had switched coaches and I was training with a different group of swimmers. I was training with actually a group of sprint freestyle swimmers, which just means they're a totally different build than I am. I'm smaller and I'm much more of an endurance type athlete. These girls are big, powerful girls and a lot of um, do a lot of powerlifting and weightlifting. And I kind of just jumped into their program and I don't think it maybe worked initially as well as maybe it could have, but you know, the, these things happen and, and I was lucky to have not too many injuries through my career anyways. Yeah, that's good. It makes you learn what works for you and what you are trying to do and what translates into your race, which is obviously a longer one. And then what works for other people. I'm sure you learned, I'm sure you learned a lot from that experience. Yeah, I definitely did. What did it mean to you to be named the captain of the 2016 team in Rio? That was a pretty big honor, obviously. You know, the funny thing about being named a team captain of an Olympic team is that they're all Olympians and these are all exceptional human beings already. Each athlete on the swim team already is a leader in, in their own right. And so all it meant for me was it was just a kind of a nice, exciting opportunity. And what I tried to do is just bring the group together. And as we went into the Rio games, have some of the older athletes who had been to the Olympics, like myself and a few other teammates, um, just share their experiences with some of the new swimmers on the team. We had some young girls on the team, like Penny Alexiak and Kylie Mass, who ended up winning Olympic medals at um, in Rio so it's just trying to provide those girls with a little bit of insight on what to expect in the athlete village and just from the games themselves prior to going into it. So they had that extra little bit of, um, I don't know, preparation behind them. Yeah, it's that theme of mentorship, which we're going to talk about. That seems to come up for you a lot. What did you tell them to expect in the Olympic village? What kind of things were you informing them about? The thing about the Olympic Village is it's actually a lot of people would be surprised, I think, to hear this, but it's not really set up for um, like high performance. It's set up for people living in it to have a really great time. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it sounds funny, but they aren't necessarily the same thing. So, for example, when you walk into the Olympic Village for the first time uh, and like when I did in London 2012, it's just there's arcade rooms everywhere. There's all these little stands everywhere. It's like free cupcakes, free junk food everywhere. In London, I remember every morning at like 7 a.m., there was this giant Goodyear blimp that would go by the village, which is pretty loud and like waking you up when you're trying to sleep, getting ready for your race. So there's all these little things that I think as an athlete, when you're going into the games, you think it's going to be kind of perfection. You expect at the pinnacle of sport that everything's going to be kind of working in your favor. And I think one of the things that we were just trying to let the younger girls know is that that's not necessarily the case. Like sometimes the bus to get you to the pool is going to be late. The bus driver might get lost. You know, there's going to be a ton of distractions. There's media, there's, there's so many things around. There's going to be loud athletes that are done their competition, partying at night, like You just have to be aware of those and stay focused on the task at hand. And in swimming, we're really lucky because swimming's the first week. And then we have that second week usually to go enjoy the games in a different way. And so I think we're just trying to remind the younger athletes to just be patient. Let's do the swimming competition and race first, and then we can go have fun and party in that second week. Yeah. It's so interesting that that's the way it leans so hard versus 
this is the Olympics, which you think of being the most high performance competition, obviously in the world. And then they're putting these, these silly things into the village. That's really interesting. How do you deal with all those distractions? Every athlete's really different for this. Like some athletes found it almost therapeutic to go out and go to the arcade and check out little things. And that for them helped calm their nerves. Personally, I was much more of an athlete that needed to just stay in the, in my own little zone and pretend like my 200 meter breaststroke was just like any other 200 breaststroke I was racing, like I mentioned earlier. So for me, I did, I, I'd stay in my dorm room. I just read books, maybe watch some shows, just be with my teammates, play cards, just really low key activities as I prepared for my race. Mm-hmm. Um, and I eliminated distractions in many ways. One of the big ways I did it was for every Olympics I went to and, and a lot of international competitions, I'd kind of uh, log out of all my social media accounts. I'd sometimes even got like a new SIM card where I chose the 12 people I wanted to communicate at, with at that time, uh, just so that I wasn't being overwhelmed with too many messages or too many, you know, just people checking in all meaning really well, but it made it feel like a high pressure situation for me. So that was one of the things I did to just kind of manage those distractions and eliminate some of them as well. That's so smart because when you are getting all of those notifications and those messages, there's, there's a pull on you all of a sudden to be obligated to respond, but then you aren't in control of where your brain is and what you are thinking about and your thought processes. Everyone else is in control. You've just given everyone else the reins, which makes total sense that that wouldn't exactly set you up for success mentally. Yeah. And the thing is about when you're getting ready to perform at the Olympics, very few people know exactly what you're going through. Right. And they mean the best, but for example, I checked one of my Facebook messages after it was one from one of my best friends, but she had sent me a message just saying like, Holy crap. I can't imagine how nervous you are right now. Like this is a huge moment. And obviously she meant very well, but had I read that right before racing, I think that would have added this sense of like, Oh man, I should be really nervous. And I am really nervous. And So yeah, everyone's kind of deals with it on their own terms and in their own ways, I think. Yeah, that makes total sense. (laughs) When you look back on your career and all of your success, could you name one thing that you think contributed most to your success in the pool? That's a hard one. Honestly, for me, I think it was, um, it's hard to say one, but you can say more than one. Just a couple. The words (laughs) words that come to mind are like, I think drive, resilience, and just plain old hard work. I had a Hungarian coach. He was a breaststroke specialist coach, worked with me in Vancouver when I was training there for six years total. And his attitude was kind of just like work harder and keep going and keep pushing no matter how you feel. And like, let's get, let's just work, 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 work. And for me personally, it did work. Mm-hmm. I know other athletes that that method wouldn't work, mm-hmm. but because of my, the, the physical type of body I have. And like I mentioned, I am a bit more of an endurance athlete and like, I really can keep pushing and pushing and get to those other levels. For mm-hmm. me, that's, I think what I needed in order to succeed in my swim career. But yeah, I mean, that's a tough one for sure. Obviously, there's lots of things. Yeah, of course. Do you think that drive is innate in you? Or do you think it's something that you learned as your career developed? I'm not sure where that came from. I think part of it actually was probably just that 
I, ha I have three older siblings. And so growing up, I was the youngest. And I think I always just wanted to keep up to them. And I wanted to, when they were climbing a playground, like I wanted to get up there with them. And so I just kind of would push myself and had a bit of that fearlessness, I think. And mm -hmm. when I did that, I saw results. And so I think I just started to see that at a really young age. And I, I was doing a lot of sports when I was younger and running was a big one for me. And I started to learn at a pretty young age that like, if I just pushed a little bit harder, I could maybe win the race. And I think I caught on to that just younger than a lot of kids maybe do. And that was a big, a big help for me. Yeah, that makes total sense. Success is unbelievably motivating. Awesome. Okay, let's shift gears just a little bit. Because this past summer, you made a pretty big announcement publicly, you made a public declaration that you're part of the LGBTQ plus community. What brought you to that decision to make that public declaration? It's a great question, because before I did it, I would never really have thought that it was necessary. Yeah. Um, but I have a really good friend. It was actually my friend, Matt Paraselli, who wrote the article, the public coming out article. And he kind of just uh, sent me a note and said, like, hey, what do you think about doing this? And I asked him, I said, sure, but why? Um, if there's some good reasons, absolutely. And I think I hadn't really just considered it before because now it seems so obvious to me. But long story short, I just think representation is just so important. And part of the reason I hadn't even um, for people who don't know, like I came out pretty late, like I'm 30 years old and I didn't even realize this about myself growing up. And I think a big reason for that was because I was in this swimming bubble and there are a lot of openly gay men in swimming, but there, I can barely name one openly gay female in swimming. And so I think for me, I just didn't even see it. And I think in order to learn things about yourself, you often need to see it in someone else and you need to have role models and mentors around. And so I think for me, it was just, it's kind of no sweat off my back to do this. And I can only imagine how many young girls it might be helping and maybe older girls too. So that's kind of the reason behind that, that article. Awesome. It's interesting how our brains can get closed off to possibilities when we don't see role models or see other people like that in front of us or see those attributes in others. We just don't even sometimes go to those possibilities. Yeah. And that's exactly, I think, what the case was for me. Yeah. You say that you were late in coming out. My dad came out at like 50 years old. So you know what? There's no right or wrong. Obviously, you know this better than everyone, but I believe there's no right or wrong time. You know, it happens at the right time in your life. And probably you were so focused in on swimming that perhaps the emotional burden that that might have taken to do it while you were in the heat of your swimming career, like maybe it wouldn't have wouldn't have served you at that time. Absolutely. And I it's one thing I think that I as I was learning this about myself kind of took as a piece of advice for myself was just like, there is no rush. And so just take time to like figure yourself out, learn about yourself. And when you're ready to share that with whoever it is, whether it's a public thing, whether it's family, a close friend, whoever, just take your own time. Cause like you say, there is, you're right. It's, it's only up to you and it's, it's a personal thing really. So. Yeah, 100%. We're all learning interesting, different things about ourselves at different rates all the time, you know, and there's, there are a few things that others put pressure on us to declare or figure out. Mm -hmm. 
but I think that we're all going through processes like that as we have more experiences and learn and grow and all of that good stuff. Yeah, yeah, totally. How do you feel since coming out? Well, in some ways I feel no different. I am still the same person, like nothing's changed in that regard. Um, But I'm now like in an amazing relationship, which I wasn't in before. And I think that's just like an added bonus. Um, It's so nice to finally have that relationship that really makes sense and feels right. That is awesome. So in that sense, it's kind of liberating and just feels good. But otherwise, like I'm I'm the same old me. I, I still do the same things. So in that sense, nothing's changed too. Tell me a little bit about what your favorite things are to do with your partner out in Alberta. Is she an outdoorsy person as well? Yeah, definitely. We just love exploring the mountains and yeah, hiking. We we both got mountain bikes this past year. We were out in the mountains biking around. And then now that, you know, winter's around the corner, we'll get the skis out and whether it's downhill or cross country or anything really is, is fun. Anything active we love. That's awesome. Okay, let's talk about Head to Head. You are the founder of an organization called Head to Head, which is based on mentorship of Olympians to younger athletes. Where did the inspiration for creating this organization come from? So when I was probably in my first year of university, I went out to uh, Vancouver. I was originally from Toronto and I kind of put all my time and effort into swimming to try and qualify for the Olympics in 2008. And um, long story short, I missed that Olympic team, which as an 18 year old was devastating. I was totally crushed. Um, I felt like giving up swimming. I felt like quitting altogether, taking something else up. And for me at the time, you know, despite having amazing coaches and teachers and parents who were kind of there to support me, it was older athletes who kind of shared their experiences with me and said, like, take some more time, keep doing what you're doing. Like you're on the right track. One year isn't enough to make that Olympic team. That's when it clicked for me, like, okay, I need to keep going with this. And so having those mentors in my life truly changed the trajectory of, you know, my life. And so then once I did make the national team and make my, my first Olympic team, I kind of felt like I wanted to be that same mentor to the younger athletes. And so I did my best to just do that naturally. And, and as I kind of went through my career, I just saw the impact I could make as an Olympic athlete to kids who are in sport, but also kids who are not in sport. And so after the 2016 games, I drove across the country in about 60 days, I did 55 presentations and swim clinics. Um, to schools, to clubs, to all sorts of different youth groups, just to, you know, help them build resilience, help them hear that they're not alone and struggling and give them some tips on managing pressure and that kind of thing. And it was a really successful little cross country tour, which basically was the birth of head to head. And so now we have about 45 Olympians all across Canada mentoring students and just trying to promote resilience and build confidence and really just that overall physical and mental wellness for kids. I love it. How do you build resilience, more resilience in kids? Yeah, I think the biggest way that we go about doing it is we try and just use storytelling as much as we can. So have the athletes go out and share their challenges. Mm -hmm. Every single Olympian has tens of hundreds of stories of times that they failed. I failed swimming lessons when I was like a nine-year-old. No way. (laughs) 
an Olympic swimmer. Yeah. And so when I'm talking to nine-year-olds, I'll share that story. When I'm talking to 18-year-olds, I'll share the story I just shared with you about missing the Olympic team. Every single Olympian has so many challenges that they overcame. And I think just by sharing those with kids, they start to see that, you know, the failed test that they just had or the bad result they just had was maybe just a blip in their journey too. And then I think the second way we do it is we try and provide real strategies for them. So we'll talk to them about maybe journaling or, you know, having like a peer support group that you talk to when you have these challenges or all these little strategies for them so that when they do face those challenges, they have something in place to fall back on. Yeah. Stories are unbelievably powerful, aren't they? It's interesting. We can hear information sometimes as much as we want. But when we hear a story, we understand and internalize it in a different way. And even better if it's attached to someone who maybe we don't see as vulnerable or we've put on this pedestal of they could do no wrong or they must not have any challenges. I think that makes a lot of sense as to what would resonate with kids. And kids oftentimes have fixed mindsets, whether it's taught to them by their parents or not. They're very focused on outcomes. I think a lot. I was certainly that way as a kid. So I think, yeah, talking about helping them to see a bigger picture of the process probably is really impactful for them. Yeah. And that's what we try and do too, is, you know, we'll connect with, let's say a school and we'll talk to the athletic director or the teachers or even some of the parents before we have the Olympian go in so that we have a sense of who the students are and what are some of the things that they're maybe so set on that, you know, the teachers aren't able to drive home with the kids that this Olympian maybe just coming from a different voice could do. Because you're right, sometimes just another voice can help drive that message home. Yeah. Is there also one-on-one mentorship or is it mostly just presentations to groups and classrooms? It's mostly groups, but, you know, with the new kind of virtual world, we've got some new virtual opportunities where there are some one-on-one opportunities. We have like an online platform now. It's called Head to Head Insiders where kids can go on and they kind of work through different modules and lessons around all these different kind of soft skills. And they can always, with that platform, they can reach out directly to Olympians over email. And then on on an individual basis, if there's specific requests, I always try and kind of do my best to accommodate those. Nice. Why are you so passionate specifically about supporting young athletes? I, I actually don't know if it is that specific. I think it's definitely not specific to athletes, like young people in general, I think I want to help. And I think even our athletes our Olympians when they share their stories around sport, we always try and have them bring it back to what is the lesson from this that kids can apply to anything they're doing, whether it's art or school or anything, it doesn't have to be sport. Yeah. Um, or it's just our avenue of kind of sharing it. But in terms of young people, I think it's just that I just, see so much potential I personally actually love going and doing these types of workshops with corporate groups too personally so I think it's just where my focus is right now it's not really limited at all and uh, where we can we do as much outreach to corporate groups as possible to get some of the Olympians in front of those groups as well very cool What impacts do you think head to head and being part of the organization has on the mentors, the athletes that are the ones that are delivering these presentations and things? Yeah, it's a great question. And to be honest, it's actually one of the reasons I built the business in the beginning. 
because of that cross country drive I was telling you about, I had such a positive, you know, transition from sport to the next chapter of my life. And so having that really nice transition made me want to provide that for other athletes. And so it's just, you know, trying to give them that opportunity to have that smooth transition, to connect them with others. And I know from personal experience, when you mentor someone, when you speak to other people, when you're helping other people, it's extremely satisfying. It gives you purpose. And as an athlete, when you're in that time of transition or when you are training, sometimes you need, you know, those additional pieces of support. And so I've gotten really good feedback. And then of course, we always compensate the Olympians financially, which might sound like a small thing, but as an Olympic athlete, when you're training, you don't always have great financial support. So that part obviously goes a long way for them as well. I'm a trainer and a coach and a nutritionist. And I definitely understand this idea of it's, it's one thing for you to know something and implement it into your life, but there's a lot more satisfaction when you feel like you can teach someone else and help them to change their life. Like to me, that is such a massive internal driver because there's something so much more purposeful, like you're saying about it. So I feel like I can definitely relate to that feeling. And when you teach something, you learn it even better yourself, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We've got, we've had Olympians who are like, and I've, I've chatted with Olympians who before coming on our program to mentor a group of athletes or to speak on a certain topic, I might work with them a little bit and chat through a topic. And when I'm chatting with them, I'll just say to them like, oh, that story is amazing because X, Y, Z. And they're like, oh yeah, I didn't even think of it that way. So you're right. When you share your stories and other people hear them, it's such a great way to learn more about even just yourself. Yeah, definitely. I love it. I love the mission behind Head to Head. I, I think it's really inspirational what you're doing. And I think it's got like a really nice purpose behind it. Okay. I have kind of one final question for you and I'm going to kind of loop it back around to the beginning when we were talking about your swimming career. You were talking about all these things that you did working with nutritionists and sleep coaches. And I don't know, you probably had some pretty solid habits in place around all these things relating to wellness. If you could name one thing that you feel like was the most impactful of those things, what would it be? I always, every question you ask, I feel like I have like six words that come to mind, but <laughs> I, I always tell people like that I think sleep is like the most important thing. End of story. Um, Mic drop. <laughs> yeah, I used to sleep just as much as possible when I was training. There, if I had a day off, I might sleep up to fourteen hours because I was so exhausted. Right, just being consistent with sleep and getting enough sleep and good quality sleep and setting up your room so that you get that good quality sleep. It will change everything, like from your skin to your mood to your everything. It's incredible. So I think if I had to pick one, that would be it. But obviously there's a ton of other things like nutrition and being active and writing things down that helped me a ton in my, my journey too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's really good insight. Sleep is the foundation. It's gotta be the foundation for all of the other things. And even when we think about nutrition and your workouts to me it's all residual if you're not sleeping and you're not recovering and you're not maximizing on the things that you're doing it's just not going to serve you as well 
Cool. Okay. Well, thank you so much for chatting today. This has been awesome. Do you have any final words to share with the listeners before we kind of sign off? If anyone's interested in learning more about Head to Head, visit our website. It's just headtohead.ca. And um, I'm always happy to chat through ideas and I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, of course. Are there any other ways that people can find you on social media or any other avenues that they can use? Yeah, I'm just at Marth MCC on Instagram and Twitter, I think. Um, yeah, I've kind of put myself out there. So if you just Google my name, I bet you can find a way to contact me. <laughs> yeah, fair. I can vouch for that for sure. I Googled you before the, the interview. <laughs> awesome. Okay, Martha, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to How Do You Feel? If you're enjoying what you're hearing, Please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Rate and review the podcast. Those ratings and reviews really do go a long way. I appreciate them all so much. Better yet, share the podcast with a friend or family member that you think would benefit from the messages that we talk about on How Do You Feel? All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. I hope everyone has a great week. And as always, remember, get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.